The following is a message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org. That's D-U-R-K-E-E-T-O-W-N dot O-R-G. Number seven uh, in your scriptures, Mark chapter number seven. As we work our way through Mark, picking up where we left off some weeks ago now, uh, we want to talk today about the problem uh, within. Um, confession is good for the soul. Um, I am uh, still a daydreamer. I, I always have been a daydreamer. Uh, if there were windows in school, which there were, that was problematic for me. There was stuff outside infinitely more interesting than what was going on inside uh, the classroom. Uh, we should just like block the windows because some of you start looking outside as well, right? You know, hey, pay attention right up here. It'll be okay. Um, I, I used to play that game. Maybe you did too. You spin the globe like and you put your finger down wherever the you, you land, like that's where you want to go visit. Except when it went to places you didn't want to go and then you spun it again and said, no, I want to go there like France, not Cambodia, uh, you know, something like that. Um, I, I love that game, and I, I, really, I really gained in my life a great love of geography, maybe because my dad's a truck driver, and just that idea of travel, uh, I still dream of places to go. Uh, you should know that the geography uh, of Mark 7 is very important in understanding uh, what Mark wants his readers to know about the ministry of Jesus. Um, you have um, some, some religious leaders, well-trained religious leaders traveling from Jerusalem, which would have been, you know, kind of the center of Jewish thinking, religious life. They're traveling from Jerusalem, and they're going to go meet with Jesus, most likely in Capernaum, although Mark doesn't tell us for sure, most likely in Capernaum, uh, which is north, up by the Sea of Galilee. And then Mark's going to move us from there further north into Tyre and Sidon and then over a little bit east to the eastern side of Galilee to the region of, of Decapolis. Not only is the geography important as far as where those places are, but who lives in those places and how this connects to this larger issue of clean and unclean, which is what, what uh, Mark starts us with here at the beginning of 7. You see, Jerusalem, kind of the center of Jewish thought, that's where everybody was going to be clean, going to the temple, doing the things that the rabbis and the Pharisees especially told them to do. If you get up to Tyre and Sidon and over into Decapolis, that's primarily Gentile regions, less Jewish for sure, considered unclean, considered less than what uh, you might find in um, in Jerusalem. But if in those regions, we're going to meet a woman, a Gentile, from uh, a Syrophoenician from birth. And, and then we're going to meet another man who lives in Decapolis. We're not told he's a Gentile, but most likely he either is or he would be a mixed breed. And what we're going to see is what does it really take to be clean? What does it really take to be clean? You see, within this geographical setting mark establishes the point that in jesus christ all things are made clean and in jesus christ all people have an opportunity to become 
clean. And, and I think for the readers, the first readers of this gospel, and hopefully for us as well, we can find real encouragement. Because as Mark makes us, gets us clear on the identity of Jesus, what we find again and again is that Jesus is a friend of sinners. He is a friend of sinners. And that's really good news. That's really good news. He is not only a friend of sinners, he is the one who welcomes the outcast. The one who may think that they're beyond the reach of God's forgiveness. And as we learn at the end of the chapter, Jesus is the one who actually does all things well. He does all things well. And so we gain an insight here into what we might call the power and ministry of Jesus, who made a promise as Mark told us earlier in his gospel, that uh, new wineskins are needed and that fresh wine is to be poured into them. Now, of course, we've just gone through the season of Lent and, uh, and Holy Week, and we are in Easter. And I, I think it's safe to say then what we can uh, uh, now arrive at is understanding that the new wineskins... Uh, are indeed the resurrected life of Jesus, the ministry empowered by Jesus through his resurrected life. And into that new wineskin of resurrection is the wine of forgiveness that is poured in, that we drink from and enjoy and feast on because we all need what? We all need forgiveness for sins. Not just one time, but every day. And some of us, more than once a day. And some of us, even more than that, right? And we need to keep drinking from the new wineskin of the resurrected life, filled with the new wine of forgiveness through the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus makes this point that uh, we need a profound encounter with him in, in uh, verse number 14 down to verse number 23. And as you kind of get to the end of that section, you find that a comparison is being made with outward external acts that we may do in religious practice and people think, oh, you must be a really good Christian. Look at all that you do on the outside versus what Jesus really points to, the problem within. What he says in verse number 20, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within. They defile a person. And so what we need is this encounter with Jesus that just doesn't make us kind of look like good people on the outside, but really takes care of the deeper issue. We need a deeper cleansing. The sins that Jesus lists are common to every human being. Now, now you might say, oh, wait, wait a second. Wait a second, you know. Yeah, you know, I've slandered somebody, or maybe I've acted fool. Maybe, I, but you know what? I've I've not been, you know, I haven't murdered somebody. I haven't committed adultery. 
So you only need to drift back to the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says what? He says, even, even if you what? You, you uh, lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. If you hate your brother, you've committed murder. You see, this is how exacting Jesus is about the law. Because what the law does is it gets down deep into us and it really shows us who we are. It doesn't let us live on the externals outside trying to impress everybody. But the sins are not only common, but are also to such an extent, you know what, that when you read that list you say, hey, you know what, after all, no one is excluded from the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. I mean, haven't you heard somebody say maybe like, hey, you don't know what I've done. Nobody can forgive me. God can't forgive me. And yet somehow Jesus draws a list. And out of that list, which includes some of the worst things human beings can do to themselves or to each other, he is going to offer forgiveness for sins. By saying, deal with the inward problem and not with the external things. I admire the writings of the Episcopalian priest Fleming Rutledge, and we'll put, the, we'll put the quote up on the board. I think of this quote often. There is no crime so atrocious, so shameful, so abysmal, no failure so profound as to put us beyond the transforming power of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. I, I want to make that proclamation clear today. That we are never beyond the forgiveness of the grace of Jesus Christ. That's why we say with all confidence that our future is Jesus Christ. He is the one through whom the new creation comes. He is the one who provided that hope for all people. That hope that actually extends beyond the reach of the offenses that we have committed. I mean, isn't it true in human relationships sometimes we can only go as far as the person? But what we find in grace is that grace is always beyond our sins. Grace is already going to meet us. And it's going to draw us in. Not only does God's forgiveness reach beyond our offenses, but Mark is going to help us understand that the deeper cleansing is actually, it's actually for everyone. It's actually for everyone. That's why I'm preaching this whole chapter, and it's a big chapter, and there's a lot going on. But I don't think what Mark wants us to read is this episode, Jesus is confronted by some religious leaders, and he sets them straight, and then he goes up north and performs a miracle, and then he travels a little bit east, and he performs a miracle. Isn't Jesus a really good guy? I think what Mark is showing us, and this would have been incredible news to his first readers is that the cleansing that we need, this deep cleansing that we need, is available for everyone. No one is without its reach. It's made for you. It's made for me. And this contrast between the highly religious and highly respectable people from Jerusalem and these two people later in the chapter who do not appear to be religious or respectable at all, and yet they receive the mercy of Jesus, is indeed good news for us. Only if, only if we're willing to let go of the external appearances of our religion. 
and say, oh God, by your grace, get down deep into my heart. Get down deep where the problem actually exists. And you say, well, you know, that sounds good, but, but, but how can we know this is true? Well, the reason we know it's true is because Jesus is the only one who actually has lived in such a way as to not just honor God with his lips, but to actually be fully devoted to his Father. To be fully in love with his Father. To be fully obedient to all of the commands. To fully do what the law required and what the law demanded. That, that Jesus was obedient from the heart. And that's what makes Jesus so great. Not just as an example to follow, like a moral greatness. Not that kind of greatness. But God in human flesh. And as a human being, he rigorously obeyed. And he said, you know what? I'm not just practicing an external thing here. This flows deeply from my own heart. And so these two healings that you have at the uh, bottom half of this chapter... Are Mark's way to show us how hypocrisy actually works to keep people from receiving the mercy that is offered to God through Jesus. Now, we all at times in our lives have acted overly religious, more religious than we are, or more religious than we even should be. You know, we've all worn our piety well at some point in our lives, and we would probably have to agree that. Religious people have a natural tendency to want to appear religious on the outside. They like the observance. Again, oh, you must be a good person. You go to church all the time. Oh, you must be a good... You mean you give money to the church as well? Wow, you must really be a good person. You mean you go once, more than once a week? Wow, you must really be a fantastic religious person. And this is how, of course, religion works. But Jesus has made it clear. It's not, the, it's not the external things, but it's what you take into yourself that defiles you. It's what's already in you that defiles you. It is those things, Jesus says, that defile us. The hypocrisy of religion is when we say, no, that's not true. That's not true of me. I, I'm not in that list. Look at all the stuff I'm doing out here. And that's the problem that the Jews had. You see, they come up from Jerusalem to encounter Jesus over an issue that uh, they observe. First couple verses of chapter number 7. They notice that some of the disciples of Jesus were eating food, um, specifically from the marketplace, with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Uh, you, you, might, you might recall and kind of laugh at it now, beginning of 2020, uh, suddenly we're all being reminded how to wash our hands, right? right? Signs all over the place, if you don't know how to wash your hands at this point in your life, this is the way you do it, you know? We probably have some of those signs still up, we need to really take them down. Uh, we had all forgotten how to wash our hands. Well, well for the Jews, hand washing was a really important thing. And, and, you know, in, in your own home, that, that kind of is a different thing depending on homes. Some homes, 
Kids come in, you know, from playing, they just dive on the table grabbing food or whatever, and mom's like, hey, hey, go wash your hands, go wash your hands, you know, you've been outside playing in the mud, and others are like, no, it's good to get a little dirt in your food, that way it kind of helps you get an immune system or some such thing, right? Well, not so with these Jews. These religious leaders were like, hey, you know, did you know that some of your disciples, Robert, aren't washing their hands when they, when they start to eat? Now, now notice that in verse number 3 and verse number 4, there's a bracket. And what Mark is doing is he, he's making an editorial comment for his readers. Because those readers, many of them would have been Gentiles, are like, what's going on? We don't understand the context. And, and so Mark explains to them that the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly. And notice, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dinner couches, which I think that would be great to have a dinner couch. Um, that would be kind of cool. And then Mark picks back up on the conversation. So the Pharisees and the scribes asked Jesus, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And Jesus says to them, well, did Isaiah say of you hypocrites? And you know, Jesus has a wonderful way of answering questions, doesn't he? Here, here's your question, and now I'm going to take you to the authority of Isaiah. And then I'm going to bring Isaiah back, and I'm going to drop it right in your laps to point out the real problem. And this is what Jesus does. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And then Jesus applies. He just drives it in deeper when he says, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And, and, and you know, that is exactly what religion does. Religion mounts up all of these external rules and regulations and it says this is what you should be doing to be religious all the while they leave behind the commandment of God. And then Jesus doesn't leave it there. He actually gives them a real life example. You see, uh, he takes them again into the commandment. Verse 9 you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Moses said, honor your father and your mother. Whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you, you Pharisees say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban. Again, the brackets. Mark is going to tell us what that means. That is given to God. Then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition you've handed down. And many such things you do. Now, well, what does Jesus mean in this example? Well, caring for one's parents was a, a duty of a Jewish family commanded by the law. And it would require, right, children to care for their aging parents. And so what the religious leaders would do is to go to, you know, maybe some of the more well-off and say, hey, listen, you know what? We're going to take some of your money and we're going to designate it to God 
so that you don't have to give it to your parents. We're just going to do a little skimming here, and we're going to set up an oral tradition that says this Corbin, that's what they called it, is for God, so therefore you can't give it to your parents. And then we can use it for what we want to use it for. And that was the oral tradition that they practiced, which they thought was fine, which they didn't think to be a problem, that they were actually stealing from their parents, but more than that, they were disobeying the actual command of God. They opted for the tradition instead of the Pharisees. This is what it means to honor God with your lips, but to have your heart far, far from him. You see, this is exactly the opposite of what God intended for his people. What God intended for his people, what God intends for you, what God intends for me, is for our hearts to be fully devoted to God. What God intends for us is to, yes, have external religious practices that are good and right and that are engaging and encouraging, but that those should flow from a heart that is fully devoted to God and love for God. But the Pharisees and their religious traditions actually removed the power inherent in God's word and replaced it with their traditions. And, and, and so as Mark moves us then away from that scene, in verse 14, Jesus is calling the people to him again and he's saying, hey, listen, everybody, and understand something. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And Jesus makes this blanket statement. A statement, quite honestly, that the church still struggles with today. Because we still are about external matters. Instead of understanding what actually defiles us and where that defilement begins. But then as he goes inside the house, his disciples are like, well, explain this to us. Explain what you're talking about. And he's like, what, you don't understand? You don't get it? Don't you see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart? But where does it go? Huh? Where? His stomach. And then after that, it's eliminated. It goes out, Right? And Jesus is drawing this contrast between clean and unclean. But notice again, you have this little bracket statement at the end of verse 19. What does is, what is Mark say? Thus Jesus declared all foods clean. Well, that's going to become very important here in just a moment. Keep that in mind. So Jesus is driving in. What does it mean to actually be clean? What does it actually mean to be right before God? So if you're concerned about your external religious practices, you're not going to take time for what comes next. You're not going to travel up to a region full of Gentiles. They're unclean. You're not going to go up there. You're not going to go over to Decapolis. They're unclean. You're not going to help some Syrophoenician woman. She's unclean. You're not going to help some man who can't hear and can't speak he's unclean but if you're jesus if you see mercy for what 
mercy actually is. If you are truly devoted to God deeply within your heart, you're not going to look at the needs of other people and Corbin it. You're going to go, well, I don't got time for them because I'm devoted to God over here. Oh, I can't help out the poor and the needy over here because I'm devoted to God over here. Jesus says you can't do that. And he's going to show us why. As he heads north and begins to minister to those who have need and know that they have need. You see, it is here that we can taste the wine of God's forgiveness poured out through the self-giving and self-sacrificing love of Jesus. And you know, when you taste that wine of forgiveness, it is so sweet. It is so good. You just want to keep drinking it in. You want to just keep taking it in. You want to know that the power of God's forgiveness is for you, regardless of where you might find yourself on that list. Or, or regardless of how many years you practiced an external Christianity. You prop yourself up in the sight of others so they wouldn't think less of you as a Christian. And when you come to that and you really go deep then into what forgiveness means, you realize, oh God, I do need your forgiveness. And you begin to understand how Jesus becomes like this powerful generator of hope for each of our lives that moves us past what it means to be defiled as we might uh, define it and what it actually means to be forgiven and i love as i was reminded of again this morning of what the apostle paul said at the beginning of his great book of romans we'll put the scripture up on the screen we are not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of god unto salvation for everyone who believes the gospel is the power of god unto salvation for everyone who who believes to the Jew first, also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Which gets us really into then these two miracles. There are questions that arise out of this text that we need to kind of think about. What does it mean that all things are clean? Well, Angelo, he read it for us. He read Peter. He read Peter preaching to uh, the house of Cornelius. And that preaching was rooted in the death, burial, uh, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You, know, you might want to keep in mind, Peter is helping Mark read, uh, write his gospel. Mark is getting information from Peter and Peter, no doubt, has to be thinking about that time when he, right, is sitting in his house and the sheet comes down from heaven full of stuff that's unclean. And Peter goes like, no, I'm not going to eat it. It's unclean. And you remember what God says to Peter? What I call clean, don't you call common. And not too long after that, knock on the door, there's some folks from, uh, right from the house of Cornelius, and Peter goes up to meet the centurion, Cornelius the Roman, who would have been considered unclean, and what does he do? He preaches the gospel. He brings the actual cleansing power of the gospel into the house of Cornelius. No wonder Mark puts in that editorial comment, 
Thus he declared all foods clean. And not only all foods clean, but all people now clean in the sense who have now access to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Mark takes up this fuller, of, fuller ministry of Jesus to the Gentiles and he lands us with this Syrophoenician woman, a Gentile, who has a real need. Her daughter has an unclean spirit. And, and, and when she hears that Jesus is in town, she comes and she falls at his feet. Now, if you ever read this section of Scripture, you might scratch your head a little bit and go like, this doesn't sound very Jesus-like. Right? Because, because the woman is begging, please, cast the demon out of my daughter. And in verse 27, Jesus says, let the children be fed first. In, in other words, hey, Gentile woman, get in the back of the line. The children, the Jews, need to come here first. Have you ever had those moments when it just doesn't seem like God's listening or God cares or God's interested? Like you've tried to be really like open and sincere and like nothing, right? You're like, what's going on? You know, at first glance, that's kind of what it looks like, and it's a challenge to understand what is going on here. But I think if we begin with uh, this one point that Jesus is filled with mercy, and it's Jesus' intention to heal the daughter of this woman, then we can understand what Jesus is actually doing as he's talking to this woman. Because if the just are going to live by faith, faith needs to be pulled out of them. I would suggest, and I just suggest, I would, I would counsel, I would strongly counsel each of us. When we meet those moments when it seems like heaven has turned to brass and we're not getting anywhere, that we face a similar circumstance where faith needs to be pulled out of us. That which is truly within us, that which is right and good within us by God's grace, needs to be challenged and pulled out of us. You know, all too often, we just want God do this. Like, God, snap your fingers, do this. Heal this person, walk on the water, feed these people, raise this person. That, you know, and we just want Jesus to be bing, 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 bing all over the place. And Jesus is like, hold on, we're going to get something here. And we see this in the response of the woman, which I think is a lesson for all of us, to follow her example when she says, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. That is a real response of faith. Coming from a heart that believes Jesus is able to do something. Totally unconcerned with external appearances. Totally unconcerned about what others think. She is kneeling, begging for deliverance, and Jesus says something to her that appears to be kind of rude and, and dismissive, and she says, like, I don't care. Here's what I need, Lord. Let the crumbs fall. Let the crumbs fall. This is a signpost for the church to follow. This is a way for us to understand how Jesus serves and ministers to us, we who have truly believed in him, 
we who have needs like this woman had a need can come to Jesus and have our needs met. Remember, we've just listened to Jesus instruct his disciples on the importance of what is within us. And so naturally, Mark is going to tell us a story that demonstrates then something within a woman that needed to be pulled out of her. And that is, of course, faith. Well, this whole chapter closes then with an irony. And as I close this this sermon, I want to point this irony out. There is a man then that Jesus meets when he moves from that region and he goes over to the region of Decapolis and we're told that this man is deaf and has a speech impediment. And they're begging Jesus to lay uh, his hand on him. And Jesus takes the man aside from the crowd privately. And in verse number 33, it's one of the really weird, strange miracles. Jesus puts his fingers into the man's ears. And then Jesus spits. And then Jesus touches the man's tongue. That's weird, right? Come on, it's okay. You can say that's weird. Like, like you're okay with touch his ears because he's deaf. But what's the spitting part? Right? What's the spinning part? And then, like, he doesn't have one of those wooden doctor things like say, ah, stick your tongue out, shove your tongue down thing. Like, he touches the guy's tongue. And, you know, the church fathers try to find all kinds of symbol, uh, symbolism and analogies and all. This is what this means. Hey, you know, who knows what it means? Don't know. I mean, why did Jesus do that? We're not told. Mark doesn't give us an editorial comment there to explain why Jesus decided to perform the miracle in this manner. That's not the irony. The irony is what follows after the man is able to hear and after the man is able to speak in verse 36 that Jesus charges them, I think the people who brought him as well as the man, he charges them, don't tell anybody. Now let me ask you, if you haven't been able to hear and you haven't been able to speak and and somebody just did a miracle and they say, now you can talk, isn't it ironic that Jesus says, hey, don't talk. Don't talk. Now, under the category, is it ever okay to disobey Jesus? You have these people then proclaiming it more zealously. Jesus says, don't tell anyone. He charges them, don't tell anyone. And they're like, oh, we're going to tell it. And they're going to be zealously telling it. Isn't that crazy? But you, you know, there's a greater irony here. That we, who by the grace of God have had our sins forgiven, the deeper problem dealt with, voluntarily keep our mouths shut. We become mute. Far too often I'm brought short on my unwillingness to speak about my faith. To speak about who Jesus is. Now, you know, that doesn't make me a crummy Christian. That doesn't make me, you know, less than. It, it just points out that, you know, what I can do so easily up here in front, you know, in my, my duty, I still struggle to do with on the street, in my private life. I, I, I think this chapter has some fantastic lessons in it that we need to really deal with. The geography is really important, but but not so much the geography of Israel today. More like the geography of my own life. The geography of my own heart. 
the things that I've covered up, the things that I don't want others to know, the places where I'm fine with external things. And I think it's there that we need to come and ask the question, are we also at times caught up in religious hypocrisy or are our sins actually forgiven? And does the power of God's forgiveness work deeply within us? And if so, will we pray for the Holy Spirit then to release our tongues so that we can proclaim as they zealously proclaim, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Just as Jesus drew faith out of the woman who needed a miracle, may faith be drawn out of us today for we all need a miracle. And let us by God's grace remember that the future indeed is Jesus Christ. Who cleanses us in the deepest, deepest way possible from all of our sins. He has done all things well. Now Father as we come to your table this morning. And are reminded again of what you did to cleanse us from the problem within. I ask, O oh Lord, that your grace would be poured out through the taking of the bread and the drinking of the cup. May we be tangibly reminded that the things that are happening in heaven today are happening on earth as well. That the Savior who intercedes for us is present among us today within his church. And may all who come to this table come